Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we're going to have a talk on North Korea. Of course, there's a lot of news on North Korea at the moment in U.S. news as well as international news. So I think this is a great, timely show. And today we have for our guest, David Maxwell. So first of all, thank you for coming on the show, Mr. Maxwell. Thank you. It's great to be here. For our listeners, David Maxwell is the Associate Director of the Center for Security Studies and the Security Studies Program in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. And among his many accomplishments, he is also a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Army, retiring as a Special Forces Colonel. So you have a much broader and greater background, but I don't want to have to go on and on because we've got such an interesting topic to dive in for today's show. So to start off, why don't we just discuss shortly what the current situation with North Korea is? Well, that's a a great question. And of course, uh, uh, you know, as we watch the news, we see that tensions are high. Uh, North Korea just conducted its sixth nuclear test. And in the last really 10 months, uh, a rather a large number of missile tests, various missile tests. And, of course, uh, with the election of Donald Trump, and as well as the election of President Moon in May, um, you know, the situation uh, now is, is really in flux. Uh, there has been a lot of rhetoric uh, on, on both sides. Uh, and, um, and I think that uh, North Korea, uh, you know, while they may be on... Um, you know, on the rhetorical offensive, um, you know, just as some might say that our president is on a rhetorical offensive as well, um, I think North Korea's strategy uh, is, is um, although it's opaque to us, I think there's some things that we can, we can assess. Uh, first of all, the rapidity of uh, the missile tests and uh, the nuclear test in September, I think may be uh, designed for three purposes. Uh, the first is... Uh, perhaps to keep the United States and South Korea off balance and preventing uh, the alliance from implementing new policies and new strategies. Uh, So that could be one. Uh, They certainly have us reacting to uh, the missile tests and the nuclear tests, uh, as well as the rhetoric. Uh, The second uh, may be the the North Korean hope uh, that the Chinese proposal for a freeze for a freeze uh, will take effect. And, of course, that's freezing the nuclear program uh, as well as uh, really stopping uh, the Rock us readiness exercises that are designed uh, to ensure the readiness of the alliance forces to be able to deter and defend the Rock from an attack from the north. Uh, and what North Korea may be doing is to try to rapidly advance or advance to the highest level its missile and nuclear capabilities so when uh, if they do have a freeze, uh, their program will be at the most advanced stages possible. Um, of course, 
uh, I don't think the U.S. and the ROC will agree to a freeze for freeze, uh, but um, but that may be uh, factoring into Kim Kim Jong Un's thinking. And of course, the third, which is not often talked about, uh, is for domestic political legitimacy inside North Korea, as well as to maintain the support of the military. Uh, we tend to think that every action that North Korea takes is directed towards us, uh, and while it's easy to uh, see that from a, uh, you know, and to take that from our position, from our point of view, uh, sometimes these events are uh, are merely uh, to uh, to demonstrate their capabilities uh, in order to uh, ensure support at home and particularly support of the military, which Kim Jong Un absolutely needs uh, the support of the military to stay in power. So those are kind of the three uh, large reasons why uh, we may have seen. Uh, you know, the frequency of tests as well as the six nuclear tests. Now, of course, the other reason is they simply uh, are at the point where they can conduct tests uh, to advance their missile programs. And, uh, you know, and they could be doing it uh, simply to advance, uh, uh, advance their program with no intention uh, for any external influence, though I think that uh, uh, most every time that they take a strategic demonstration, uh, which is what we should call their missile and nuclear tests, not provocations, but strategic demonstrations, uh, you know, they are to achieve some kind of influence effect. Uh, so I think that's, uh, you know, I can talk more about the situation and the strategy. Um, and I would, let me just end on one point. Uh, from open source reporting, we have seen no military mobilization on either side of the DMZ. Uh, we don't see forces going to a higher state of, of alert uh, and readiness. Although we, you know, the United States, of course, has has deployed strategic assets uh, and uh, you know both air and naval assets uh, as uh, you know as to demonstrate strategic reassurance and strategic resolve, uh, but we've seen no mobilization, uh, no forces on higher alert, and of course the North, uh, not having satellites, not having uh, high tech ISR, depends on their. Uh, human intelligence network, their spies in South Korea, uh, to be able to observe uh, what the uh, ROC and U.S. military are doing. And hopefully, uh, since both sides are not mobilizing, that doesn't mean, or that means that we are not on an imminent path to war, uh, which I, I hope we are, uh, we are not on such a path. And so when you think about the situation right now, there's a lot of back and forth between U.S. commentary about North Korea and how you know, they're, they're trying to have a missile that reaches the states and so forth. But, you know, this is a broader issue. So what is the strategy in dealing with North Korea and how does that incorporate into broader U.S. policies in regards to East Asia and the Pacific? Because we have this whole region, neighbors of North Korea, that have a huge stake in what's going on. Before I answer that question, let me describe uh, the North Korean strategy, uh, and then if I don't answer your question, come back to that, uh, and I'll talk about China, Russia, Japan, South Korea, but I think it's important to understand uh, North Korea's perspective, and of course, I, I'm, I, I might sound like I'm speaking with authority, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this, but you know, there are no real North Korean experts. We're all students of North Korea trying to understand, you know, the opaqueness, you know, look through the opacity of uh, of the regime, 
so you know you can say you can take what I say certainly with a grain of salt. Uh, but you know we know that the vital national interest of the Kim family regime is survival of the regime, not survival of the nation state, not survival of the Korean people living in the north. So survival is 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 what they are after. We know when um, when Wang Junyap, who was the highest ranking defector from North Korea, the father of Juche ideology, when he defected in 1997, you know, we asked him why uh, the North has invested all of this, uh, all of their resources in their military, but has not resumed hostilities, has not restarted the Korean War that has only been suspended by an armistice. And of course, he looked at us and he said, "American nuclear weapons. You know, we can't win a nuclear war against the United States, and if there is a war." they believe the United States will use nuclear weapons. Uh, and furthermore, they believe that the United States will not attack another nuclear-armed nation. So they look at nuclear weapons first and foremost uh, from a deterrence perspective, and, uh, and it is to deter an attack by the United States. Uh, second, their nuclear weapons and their missile programs uh, support their blackmail diplomacy, where they can conduct strategic demonstrations or provocations to gain political and economic concessions. And we've seen them do that for the last 60 years. Uh, of course, nuclear tests only since 2006, but uh, provocations on the DMZ, you know, ratcheting up tensions, all designed to gain political and economic concessions. Uh, you know, and, and so it supports their blackmail diplomacy. But also in their strategy, what they and, and what is often overlooked because we hear that they they are interested in survival, so they're not suicidal, so they're not going to attack. Um, but what we really have to understand is the second part of their strategy. They believe that they must unify the peninsula under their control to ensure their survival, and so their strategy is focused on unification. Uh, and a lot of people will laugh and say, "Well." There's not going to be unification. You know, North and South are so different. But from the North's perspective, they have to unify. Uh, and to do that, they need to do, uh, they need one key condition, and that's U.S. forces off the peninsula. And so, as again, as part of their strategy for the last 60 years, they have continually tried to drive a wedge in the ROC-U.S. alliance. Uh, and they want to split the alliance, and they want U.S. forces off the peninsula because what that will do is allow them to execute their strategy, which is two-pronged, uh, which is both coercion and force. And so they believe that if they have nuclear weapons, the alliance is split, and there are no U.S. forces on the peninsula, that they will be able to coerce the ROC uh, into unification, that they will be able to threaten with nuclear weapons, as well as uh, they have also been executing a 60-plus year subversion campaign in the ROC. And they believe uh, that they have infiltrated uh, agents of influence uh, into the South, and they want to get to a point where uh, politically there is enough political will in the South uh, to support unification under the North's control. Now, I don't think that that is very likely, uh, but that, I think, is, is their strategy. And so subversion and coercion will lead to unification. And then if that fails then they have a campaign plan to execute uh, an attack of the South and reunify the peninsula by force. And so uh, while we look at their nuclear program to deter a United States attack, uh, and you know we know that survival of the Kim family regime is their vital national interest, uh, and so we say they're not suicidal, 
we have to remember uh, that the actions that we take diplomatically, uh, whether we recognize them, we come to a peace treaty, we withdraw forces, we have to remember the second part of the strategy, uh, which is unification of the peninsula under their control, either through coercion or by force. Uh, and so as we are executing diplomatic uh, strategies uh, or a national stra or a strategy against the North, uh, we have to remember what their strategy is. And so how does that figure in with, uh, uh, and how does China and Russia, uh, Japan and, and Korea figure into this? Well, you know, first of all, China is the, is the, the 600-pound gorilla on, the, on the, or the elephant in the room in Asia. Um, and, of course, I think what China wants, I think China is, you know, a very conservative country, and it first and foremost wants to maintain the status quo. Uh, and so their policy of three no's, no war, no instability or collapse on the peninsula, and no nuclear weapons. That's been their three no's, and, and of course, uh, we have to say that they're a pretty good baseball team uh, because they're batting 600. They've got two out of three, <laughs> no war and no collapse to this point. They've failed, like everybody, on nuclear weapons. Uh, but, uh, so the North, uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, China wants to uh, maintain the status quo. Uh, and I think that they're going to take action uh, to do that uh, in in any uh, in any situation. Uh, they're they're trying to maintain the status quo, and I think what's changed for them is their view of the potential for United States action uh, because of our rhetoric, the the discussions about uh, preemptive strike, preventative war. Um, you know, they I think have a genuine concern uh, that President Trump may take action. And so uh, while we have seen an increase in North Korean uh, missile tests uh, and their nuclear tests, um, we've also seen China uh, be almost the most supportive of international sanctions, UN sanctions, uh, and actions to try to, uh, to uh, reduce tensions uh, and to try to put pressure on North Korea to, uh, to cease its, uh, uh, its actions. Um, I think that uh, the, the reason China is doing that is not to denuclearize North Korea. It is, uh, you know, to maintain the status quo, but it's also to send a signal to us that they are taking sufficient actions uh, to try to, to uh, reduce tensions in order to prevent us from conducting a preemptive strike or a preventative war. So. Uh, I don't think we can count on China to solve our security problem on the Korean Peninsula. Um, you know, all of the talk about them, uh, you know, forcing uh, North Korea back to the negotiating table to denuclearize, um, it, it, that is not uh, realistic. Uh, and, of course, today we see that uh, Secretary Mattis went to the DMZ uh, and made statements about what a war, you know, what a catastrophe war would be. And he said that our goal is, uh, is denuclearization through diplomacy. Uh, the North response was denuclearization is not going to happen. Uh, you know, they have written it in their constitution that they're a nuclear power, and they are going to uh, uh, maintain their nuclear capability and continue to develop it until they have the capability to strike the United States in order to have the strongest possible deterrent capability uh, to prevent a U.S. attack. Now, Russia, of course, I think is, uh, is, a, is the spoiler. Uh, and I think given the state of Russian and United States 
relations now, I think we're going to see Russia uh, take action to uh, to try to undercut uh, U.S. legitimacy uh, in Northeast Asia uh, in any way possible. Now, they only have a 17-kilometer border uh, with North Korea. They don't have the forces really to, uh, uh, to affect things uh, directly on the ground. Uh, but, of course, air and naval forces uh, are... Uh, are there, and we are seeing uh, um, Russian actions in the Kuril Islands now. You know, the claims to the, the Kuril Islands uh, in northern Japan, uh, we're seeing activity uh, there, and I think that that is um, uh, a, uh, an action that may be designed to influence uh, the region uh, and, of course, influence Japan because <laughs> they're directly affected by that. Uh, you know, they... They both have claims to the islands up there, and uh, and so I think that Russia is going to act as a as a spoiler, both uh, from a security perspective and uh, diplomatically, certainly in the UN Security Council. Uh, but like China, I think that they have, uh, you know, they had to go along with these last uh, UN Security Council resolutions uh, because, um, you know, despite the, them wanting to be a spoiler, uh, I think you know logically. Russia, China, Japan, South Korea, and the United States do not want war. And I think that's really uh, uh, something that we all can agree on, that uh, war on the Korean Peninsula will be unlike anything we have seen since the end of the Korean War, or since the Korean War was suspended in 1953. But a war on the peninsula will look a lot like World War II and the Korean War, and will be far worse uh, than any conflict we've been involved with uh, that Russia, China, uh, the United States, South Korea, and Japan have been involved with since 1953. Uh, the amount of death and destruction uh, that will uh, will occur if there is a war uh, will will just be on a scale that is uh, is difficult for us to imagine. Now, of course, Japan is uh, is a key player, and, uh, and of course, uh, President uh, Prime Minister Abe was just reelected. Uh, there has been long talk about changing their constitution from the pacifist constitution uh, and changing their military from simply a self-defense capability uh, to giving them uh, uh, capabilities to to act uh, as part of a coalition uh, and to take really to take offensive action uh, in defense of their uh, defense of their country. Um, you know the relations between South Korea and Japan. Uh, still remain tense over historical issues. Uh, obviously, the, the colonization of Korea by Japan, the comfort women issue, uh, that hinders uh, the trilateral relations that are really necessary uh, uh, for uh, uh, effective uh, deterrence and, uh, if necessary, to conduct operations. Um, it, would be, it would be wonderful if we could have a trilateral alliance uh, South Korea, Japan, and the United States, uh, but given the historical issues, that's difficult. Um, there has been you know, recently the joint information sharing, uh, intelligence sharing agreement between South Korea and Japan. Uh, that was very politically sensitive. Uh, and, uh, um, and while that's a step in the right direction, we really need to move to integrated missile defense uh, to be able to harness uh, both the the detection capabilities of radars, you know, the sensors, the ISR of all three countries, as well as uh, the missile defense capabilities, and to, uh, to have an integrated ability to cue, uh, target, and uh, destroy uh, missiles uh, that will threaten 
uh, the rock in the Japan in, in Japan, and so uh, that would be a good thing. But of course, in the South, you know the uh, the political situation is such that people will say, "Why should we contribute to defending Japan?" And uh, you know, it's difficult to explain to the general populace that uh, an integrated missile defense uh, that would would of course benefit Japan would provide greater benefit uh, to South Korea uh, than just a bilateral defense uh, um, missile defense uh, supporting uh, the defense of the rock. So I'll stop there and. Uh, and uh, I can talk further if you have, uh, if you want me to elaborate any more. Well, you mentioned alliances, and one of my questions is, what is the state of the United States alliance with South Korea and Japan, since we do have fairly decent relations with both countries, and this definitely factors into the whole situation we have at hand with North Korea? Yeah, I think uh, it's safe to say that the U.S.-Japanese alliance is is as strong as it's ever been. Uh, it is, uh, it, you know, of course there are tensions with U.S. forces on Okinawa, uh, but uh, as a general statement, uh, the, the Japanese-U.S. Uh, alliance is strong. Uh, and I think the election, the re-election of Abe, um, you know, will mean that... Uh, uh, that this alliance will will be sustained uh, through through his tenure, uh, and I think that uh, and that's very important. I mean, you know, some people would say that uh, uh, Japan is uh, our eleventh aircraft carrier, uh, the unsinkable aircraft carrier uh, in the Pacific, and and it's important uh, with seven United Nations bases uh, where U.S. forces are based uh, in uh, in Japan, uh, and in Japan is critical to the United States' ability uh, to be able to fight a war on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, you know, it will serve as an intermediate staging base, as a logistics resupply. Uh, you know, U.S. aircraft based in Japan uh, will be able to fly out of there and fly out of Japan to, to uh, attack targets in, in the north. Uh, so uh, the, the Japanese-U.S. alliance is critical, uh, and it is strong. Now, the ROC-U.S. alliance is strong. Uh, but clearly, there there are tensions, um, and uh, you know, as a result of uh, actions really by both presidents, um, you know, the um, uh, President Trump's call to uh, uh, to you know cancel or at least renegotiate, try to renegotiate the Corus FTA, the Free Trade Agreement, uh, certainly puts tensions on, on the alliance. Um, you know, there is uh, of course the THAAD deployment which is a self-defense measure uh, that defends uh, U.S. forces as well as uh, South Korea from missile attack uh, from the north. Um, it is, a, you know, that's been very controversial, and it's very controversial because China has reacted strongly uh, against South Korea for its decision to allow the deployment of that. Um, and so they have taken economic uh, uh, actions against South Korean firms in China, uh, manufacturing, retail, uh, entertainment, uh, have, have all been impacted uh, because of the South Korean decision. And of course, China looks at THAAD uh, as, a, as a threat to it because the, the radars can, uh, uh, can range into Chinese territory. But we should keep in mind that it's only a threat to China uh, if China plans on using its missiles to attack South Korea. I mean, you know, there's, that doesn't have an offensive capability. It's a defensive capability, uh, and 
yes, its ra radars can range into uh, Chinese territory, uh, but we have many more ISR capabilities that can see into China uh, than a THAAD radar. Uh, so, but China is exploiting the, the deployment of THAAD, uh, you know, for political purposes, uh, and uh, and really, uh, you know, it is trying to pressure uh, South Korea, uh, you know, to affect uh, the United States deployment of of that weapon system. Uh, so there there is friction within the alliance. President Moon has just uh, again uh, this, you know, the the um, uh, the Security Consultative. A meeting is taking place in Seoul right now. Secretary Mattis and, and General Dunford are there. And um, President Moon has called for a change to uh, the command structure. Uh, and, you know, this is known as OPCON transfer, uh, which actually started in January of 2003. Uh, when Secretary Rumsfeld uh, really initiated this. Uh, and the idea was that... Uh, this so-called wartime OPCON uh, would be transferred to uh, to South Korea, uh, and U.S. forces would move out of Yongsan down to Pyeongtaek, the city of Pyeongtaek, in, in the U.S. camp uh, called Camp Humphreys. Uh, and the majority of ground forces and headquarters would consolidate there, uh, and this has been underway since 2003, uh, and the facilities are nearing completion, and they are... Uh, uh, U.S. forces are, some U.S. forces are repositioning there. Uh, but this OPCON transfer uh, is a source of, uh, of friction. Uh, and while the U.S. Uh, has long supported it, uh, over time the South Koreans have, uh, have uh, requested delay. Uh, and then in 2015, both countries agreed uh, to delay the decision until the conditions are right. And so while from 2003 to 2015 there always had been a, a designated time for OPCON transfer, uh, in 2015 it became conditions-based. Uh, and those conditions being that the ROC military would develop the independent warfighting capabilities uh, necessary to op operate independently. Uh, and, uh, and one thing we should know about the alliance uh, since the establishment of the ROC U.S. Combined Forces Command in 1978, uh, the, the intent and the purpose of the command has been to uh, bring together the strengths of both nations uh, where they have comparative advantage uh, and to be able to fight as an alliance uh, and, of course, to overcome the weaknesses of both. And as an example, the United States brings... Uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities, C4I capabilities, logistics capabilities. Uh, both countries have tremendous air capabilities. You know, South Korean Air Force, uh, of course, is, is based on uh, F-16, F-15 uh, uh, aircraft, uh, U.S. aircraft, and they are an advanced air power nation. Uh, so both the combined air forces bring tremendous power. Uh, you know, the ROC Navy is, uh, is very strong, but the preponderance of naval forces uh, and, of course, all the carrier battle groups will come from the United States. The amphibious capability, uh, while there are two divisions of ROC Marines, uh, the, uh, uh, the majority of amphibious uh, capability will be brought by the United States and along with uh, uh, a division of U.S. Marines. Uh, but ground forces uh, consist primarily of ROC forces. You know, they have 650,000 uh, forces and the majority of uh, of armor, of infantry, 
uh, will be rock forces, and the rock forces will do the bulk of the ground fighting. And then, of course, the counterfire fight. Uh, this is the fight against North Korean artillery, uh, the, the hundreds and hundreds of, of artillery uh, pieces that are aligned along the DMZ, uh, many of which can range Seoul. Uh, there is a uh, what we call a counterfire fight, an ability uh, for the South Korean artillery, U.S. artillery tied together through a network uh, designed by the United States employing artillery, rockets, and air power to be able to destroy the North Korean artillery should they come out of their underground facilities and start firing artillery at Seoul and, uh, and throughout the South. And so the alliance has been optimized uh, to, uh, to, to be able to work together uh, employing the strengths of, of both sides. To split that, and that's really what the OPCON transfer is all about, is splitting the alliance into separate commands, which as most military people will tell you, that's not advisable uh, to not have unity of command uh, and unity of effort. And so if you split the commands, uh, then, uh, then you have, uh, you're, you're going to weaken uh, the alliance military capability. Uh, the combined command uh, is, you know, one of the finest combined organizations in the entire world uh, and, and really, in many ways, superior to NATO because it's only the two countries. You know, NATO has, has all the nations there, but, uh, but it is probably the finest combined command and most effective and efficient combined command uh, that's really ever existed. Uh, and to split that in the face of the very real threat from the north uh, puts the, um, you know, will weaken the alliance. And so all these factors are, uh, um, you know, are impacting on the alliance. That said, you know, over the last 60 years, uh, there has been friction in the alliance, ups and downs. And, and uh, um, you know, during the time of the progressive uh, uh, Kim Dae-jung and uh, No Myo-hoon and U.S. President Bush, uh, Bush too, uh, you know, different political views, uh, yet the alliance prevailed and, uh uh, and remain strong, and uh, and so now while there are, there will be differences in the alliance, uh, I'm optimistic uh, that uh, uh, the alliance will remain strong, uh, and we will get through these uh, these areas of friction. Going back to Russia, I understand the interests of the neighbors of North Korea, but what is Russia's stake in all of this? Uh, what do they gain or lose from dealing with North Korea? Well, of course, they have historical ties, uh, and um, uh, and I think that uh, you know Russia, as I said, would like to be a spoiler. Uh, I think Russia uh, would like to have a say in what happens uh, after uh, North Korea no longer exists. You know, at some point, if there is war or if there is regime collapse, uh, there's going to be a new arrangement on the peninsula, uh, which I think should be a reunified peninsula. Uh, you know, under a uh, United Republic of Korea, uh, but both China and uh, Russia, and to extend Japan, uh, will all want to be able to have a say in what happens. Uh, now, I think, you know, I've been to many Track 2 uh, events, you know, with Chinese, Russian, uh, Japanese, South Koreans, and U.S. Uh, delegations, and, you know, most admit that unification under the South is, is acceptable and is what will really happen. Uh, you know, that uh, even though some people say, you know, China wants a buffer zone, China doesn't want, uh, won't allow unification, I don't think anybody 
uh, is going to prevent unification because nobody else wants to take on the burden uh, of unification. I mean, China is not going to absorb uh, absorb North Korea. Russia certainly is not going to absorb North Korea. They don't want the financial burden. However, uh, China, I think, you know, will will allow unification, uh, and and really has two objectives in a unified Korea. Uh, one is continued access to the resources that are in North Korea. They've been taking out 500 and, and I mean 50 and 100 year leases of uh, for mineral mineral rights in North Korea. So, you know, China's extraction economy uh, wants to continue to be able to extract from the north. Uh, the second, though, and their real objective vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States is U.S. forces off the Korean Peninsula. Uh, they will accept a unified peninsula, but they don't want U.S. forces on the peninsula. So their long-term objective will be getting U.S. forces off the peninsula, and, and that is how we will see them uh, act diplomatically. Uh, and I think what you'll see is that uh, if there is war or collapse on the peninsula, then Chinese forces will intervene uh, inside North Korea, uh, but then they will say to the United Republic of Korea that we think all foreign forces should be out of the peninsula. You know, we'll leave. You should send America home. And, um, and of course, the, the irony in that situation is <laughs> the demands for U.S. forces to leave the peninsula uh, may, come, may be strongest uh, coming from the population of the United States who will say, if there's a unified Korea, why do we need forces on the peninsula anyways? Uh, but I, I am not an advocate of, uh, of necessarily uh, or of, of prematurely saying that U.S. forces will withdraw from the peninsula. I think that that will be a needs to be a decision uh, of the unified Korea and the United States and what is best uh, for both nations. Uh, should the alliance be maintained? Should forces remain there? Uh, and what I always recommend to my Korean uh, colleagues is that you know, they should tell the Chinese that the future of the alliance will be condition-based, uh, based on the security conditions of the, of the peninsula and the region, uh, and that will determine uh, the, the nature and the state of the ROC-US alliance. But Russia, I think, wants to, uh, wants to be able to also have access to resources, uh, you know, some years ago they have talked about a pipeline from Russia to South Korea that would go through North Korea, uh, that uh, an oil pipeline. You know, they, of course, want to benefit economically, uh, but I think that, uh, um, that we will see them act in a way that will uh, allow them access to resources, allow them political influence, uh, and if the current uh, U.S., uh, uh, Russian relationships persist, uh, they will do what they can to minimize U.S. Uh, influence in the region. And they, too, would uh, support China in trying to have U.S. forces removed from the Korean Peninsula. Uh, any reduction of, of U.S. forces and thus U.S. influence in the region uh, will be to uh, both China and, and Russia's benefit. And I have a question which I feel like transitions nicely with what you were just saying because I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but I still want to ask it. So hypothetically, if it does come to war between North Korea and potentially the U.S., in your opinion, where, does, where would China stand? They have a huge stake in the peninsula and the region. So do you think they'd take a side or not? 
Well, they've made recent statements to that effect, but first let me disabuse you of one notion. There will not be war between North Korea and the U.S. only. Okay. We've got, this, is, this is not like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, if there is a war, it will be against North Korea against South Korea and the U.S. Uh, you know, there, there can be no war on the peninsula that leaves South Korea out. Uh, South Korea, I mean, South Korea will be the battleground, uh, and and the U.S. cannot go to North Korea uh, militarily without support uh, from South Korea. Uh, we could not project force, uh, uh, even if we use Japan to project force, we could not project force into North Korea without the support of South Korea. Uh, but if there is a war and North Korea attacks, they will be attacking South Korea. Uh, you know, they, they also can't, uh, except for, uh, when they develop their ICBM that can reach the United States, you know, they can't directly attack the United States uh, with, you know, certainly with ground or, uh, or, or sufficient military or air, uh, air power uh, or, or naval power, naval and air power. Uh, so please understand that there is no such thing as just a war between uh, North Korea and the United States. Uh, now, how would China act? Now, recently they have made, uh, they, they've reiterated statements they've made in the past. If the South and the United States attack North Korea, they will defend North Korea as part of their alliance. Uh, but they have said in recent months uh, that uh, if North Korea initiates a war, they will not support it. Uh, they will not support the North, and um, which I think is logical from their perspective because uh, you know there there will be no way for them to support North Korea and and for North Korea to achieve success on the peninsula. I mean, when there is if there is war, uh, the the Iraq U.S. alliance will prevail, uh, and China does not want to get into a shooting war uh, with the United States uh, and. Um, you know, and although China wants to maintain the status quo, you know, once Kim Jong-un changes that status quo, uh, uh, China is, is going to seek uh, a different strategic calculus. You know, they will accept, as I said, unification, uh, and then they will try to achieve their long-term objectives. Uh, and their long-term objectives do, do not include, uh, you know, maintaining uh, uh, North Korea, you know, forever. Uh, you know, I mean, or they, they will try to maintain it for as long as possible, but they recognize North Korea is not going to exist as it is forever and that they have to be prepared uh, for their, uh, uh, their long-term objectives, which, again, include the U.S. forces not on the Korean mainland. So to minimize the tensions and potential war in the region, what kind of leverage does the U.S. have on North Korea? Of course, we always hear of sanctions. Are these sanctions actually having any effect? What is your opinion on U.S. leverage and sanctions and so forth? Yes, well, sanctions are important, uh, although we have to, again, uh, keep in mind that sanctions uh, have not in the past changed North Korean behavior. Um, and they're unlikely to until they get to a point where the regime is really threatened. Uh, you know, North Korea has proved to be very resilient, uh, and the problem with sanctions is that uh, for decades, North Korea has been able to get around them, uh, both because China allowed, allowed them to get around them and because North Korea has developed a global illicit network uh, that 
traffics in uh, in illicit drugs, in counterfeit drugs, in counterfeit cigarettes, in counterfeit money. Uh, it projects slave labor around the world, uh, and all of this uh, gains hard currency for the regime outside of uh, the international system. Uh, what is really interesting is that it has only been in this last year that uh, that we have really imposed sanctions uh, on on North Korea that are really uh, that really have a, a strong effect. I mean, sanctions on on specific industries, on companies, on people, uh, and the use of international uh, financial instruments. Uh, those, you know, if we had done these uh, back in the 90s uh, during the time of the agreed framework, uh, when we we made that agreed framework based on an erroneous assumption that North Korea was going to collapse in the 90s, and thus we didn't have to worry about it. If we had implemented those kind of sanctions, we would have prevented the development of its missile and nuclear programs. Uh, and so um, the sanctions, while they, they will not necessarily change behavior, are important now because it cuts off uh, support for uh, the hard currency it needs, uh, both to maintain the, the, the uh, allegiance of the regime elite, but more importantly, to support their missile and nuclear program. Uh, again, it's it may be kind of closing the barn door after the horses have left, uh, but sanctions are important because they still need money uh, to continue to progress in their their missile and nuclear capabilities. So sanctions are important, but they must be combined with shutting down uh, North North Korea's illicit activities around the world. They have what they call Department or Office 39 uh, that uh, launders money. Uh, and that conducts all these illicit activities. And, you know, North Korean diplomats are violating both local laws in the countries in which they're operating and, of course, international law by uh, using its their diplomatic status uh, for illegal activities. And what we really need to do is to, uh, is to conduct what I call a strategic strangulation campaign to be able to shut off uh, access to these illicit activities. And what is very interesting is that since June... Uh, we have seen Mexico, Peru, Philippines, I think uh, the UAE, and a number of countries both uh, expelling diplomats, uh, cutting off and, and forcing North Korean laborers to return home, you know, who are, I mean, they're suffering human rights or human rights violations uh, by, uh, by working in, in third countries uh, for, for slave wages that, and and the wages are going directly to the regime. And, uh, and so we're seeing uh, the, the U.S. and South Korean diplomatic uh, uh, corps influencing countries around the world to take action against the North. Uh, and these actions, you know, will have the long-term effect of cutting off uh, uh, external uh, funding for the regime. Uh, and then at that point, you know, we may see some, uh, uh, some changes in behavior, uh, although, um, you know, I, I think we also have to expect uh, before we see changes in behavior that we will see uh, the North actually conduct provocations, probably kinetic provocations, uh, to try to break, uh, uh, to break that. And, of course, the worst case is that uh, losing access to, uh, to the uh, external funding and the resources for the regime uh, could cause internal uh, conflict uh, inside the regime, if uh, if the elite uh, and the military 
uh, no longer uh, continue to support Kim Jong-un and the Kim family regime. And then we see uh, another complex uh, and dangerous problem, uh, and that would be regime collapse. And on that note, how stable is the regime at this point in time? It seems from the bits of news that we get from North Korea that you know, all seems stable and happy, but is there a reality that potentially it might not be? Well, again, that is something we just don't know, and we have to look and compare to history uh, and compare what we've seen in the last six years uh, in the, the, the assumption of power of Kim Jong-un and compare that to uh, when his father, Kim Jong-il, was designated as the successor to Kim Il-sung. That was in 1973. Uh, Kim Il-sung designated Kim Jong-il as his successor and put him in charge of the Organization and Guidance Department, which is the, the center of power inside the, the Korean Workers' Party. It controls all assignments, all promotions, uh, who gets purged, uh, who goes to the political prison camps, uh, you know, who is executed. All of that is centralized at the Organization and Guidance Department. Kim Jong-il took control of that in 1973, and for 21 years, he purged his opponents, and he cleared the decks. And so when Kim Il-sung died on July 6, 1994, Kim Jong-il was already running the country, had already eliminated his opposition. And of course, during that 21 years, the purges that occurred happened in you know, benign events, uh, drownings in March, car accidents, things like that. Now, whereas Kim Jong-un was designated probably as early as 2009, maybe not, uh, maybe as late as 2010, you know, he only had maybe a year or two as a designated successor, successor and had no time to purge his opposition. And so what we have seen for the last uh, six years are very violent purges. You know, he, it appears... Uh, that things are stable because he's ruling, uh, you know, ruling by terror. I mean, when you execute your uncle, who was the designated regent, uh, you know, using 14.5 millimeter air and aircraft guns, uh, you know, that sends a pretty powerful message. And and so while people may be at the point now where they fear for their lives, and so they remain loyal because you know they want to survive, uh, this should be troubling to us in terms of decision-making, particularly in crisis. And this is what I worry about uh, from Kim Jong-un. 33 years old, you know, has some Western education, education in Switzerland. I worry that he may have a sense of, uh, of, of arrogance that he has some Western education and thinks he might understand the outside world, uh, but yet he's very inexperienced. And now, because of this rule by terror, uh, he has... Uh, he has people around him uh, that, you know, in order to survive, believe they have to tell him what they think he wants to hear. You know, so the emperor wears no clothes. And I never thought I would say this, but things were a lot more stable with Kim Jong-il because I think he understood the correlation of forces between North and South uh, and, and what would happen in war. Uh, and I worry that Kim Jong-un does not have that same understanding because he does not have any experts around him uh, that are telling him uh, the truth about his military capabilities in relation to the South and the South and the U.S. military capabilities. And in times of crisis, that could lead him to make 
what we would consider an irrational decision, but from his perspective, it could be very rational based on the information that he has, which could be to launch an attack, uh, which obviously, as uh, 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 General Mattis, Secretary Mattis said today, would be a catastrophe, and, uh, and that's what we don't want to happen. And so, therefore, we must deter him, and we must demonstrate strength. The one thing that he has learned uh, from his father and his grandfather is that you don't attack strength. Uh, and that you've got to weaken the alliance, separate the alliance in order to be successful. And so that's why it's imperative for us to demonstrate uh, strategic reassurance and strategic resolve by having a strong military presence, uh, deploying strategic assets uh, to be able to show to him uh, that we have the will and the capability uh, to defeat him uh, should he uh, attack the South. Well, I think that is a perfect transition, Mr. Maxwell, into something as a new guest you don't know, but we tend to, if time permits, like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we might not have touched on or have a final thought. So I want to hand the floor over to you for that. Oh, well, that, uh, yeah, you've caught me by surprise. All right. So uh, when I look at the the Korean uh, situation, I like to talk about the big five uh, and uh, to summarize uh, the situation. Of course, number one is war. Uh, that is that is the, the first party. We must deter war, but if deterrence fails, we have to, to defend the South, fight, and win. All right, so war is number one. Number two is regime collapse. And while some people think that regime collapse uh, is benign, uh, I think that there will be, uh, in any collapse scenario, there will be uh, some form of conflict. And of course, the most dangerous thing about regime collapse is that if faced with collapse, and given that survival of the Kim family regime is the single vital national interest, uh, he could make the decision, uh, a rational decision from his perspective, to execute his campaign plan to unify the peninsula by force uh, in order to sur- ensure his survival. Uh, now, again, that wouldn't happen, but from his perspective, that may be his only option. Uh, and so we have to plan and prepare for that of that potential eventuality. The third, and I haven't talked about this at all, and I, I really have to emphasize this, is human rights uh, and the crimes against humanity. In 2014, Justice Kirby from Australia led the United Nations Commission of Inquiry and uh, documented the human rights atrocities that are being committed on a scale that we really haven't seen since World War II um, by a nation state. Uh, to, to such uh, a sustained, uh, uh, in such a sustained manner of, of violating human rights and committing uh, uh, crimes against humanity, the atrocities that are being committed against the Korean people in the North are are, are just too brutal to comprehend. Uh, with the prison camps, the purges, uh, and just the the the, the songbun, which is the the classification of society, 51 classes of, of society uh, that are, uh, you know, that, that prevails uh, and rules the entire lives of, of people. So human rights are really important. Uh, and just like Ronald Reagan, you know, said the evil empire uh, and, and people heard that in the gulags of, of the Soviet Union, you know, and were, were um, uh, you know, were given hope because of that, it's important for us to emphasize human rights uh, for the Korean people living in the North. When you talk to defectors, they tell us that 
the people need to know that we know that they are suffering. And so it's important for us to focus on human rights, uh, to give them hope. I mean, it is a moral imperative, but there's a practical aspect to this as well. Uh, and uh, something that we, we should keep in mind, as we talk about the nuclear threats uh, and the nuclear, uh, uh, their nuclear program, it legitimizes the regime. It demonstrates uh, from the regime's perspective that we fear their nuclear weapons, and that reinforces regime legitimacy. Uh, whereas when the Commission of Inquiry report came out, and every time we talk about human rights, it undermines the legitimacy of the regime. It's a threat to the regime. And when the regime, uh, when the Commission of Inquiry came out, the regime did what everybody does. You know, they denied everything and made counter-accusations. You know, they talked about South Korean human rights. Uh, and because talking about human rights in North Korea is a threat to them. Uh, and so, therefore, we must talk about it uh, and... Uh, and we must plan for all the human rights issues that are going to come about in unification, uh, you know, to include transitional justice and, and the like. So human rights is number three. Uh, number four are the asymmetric threats. Uh, and I lump the asymmetric threats in, in these categories, the nuclear program, the missile program, its cyber capabilities, its special operations capabilities, and as I've talked about, uh, its global illicit activities network, uh, that supports the regime. These asymmetric capabilities uh, are really uh, the key to its, its survival, uh, its ability to, to operate, uh, and uh, they will be critical uh, to, obviously, to war fighting as well. So we have to address the asymmetric capabilities. I don't, and I, but what I don't want to do is just solely focus on the nuclear threat. Uh, the nuclear threat is a symptom of the problem, and of course, that problem is the existence of the Kim family regime, uh, which brings me to the, the fifth, uh, uh, the number five of my big five, and that is unification. Unification uh, is really the only way that we are going to see an end of the nuclear program, an end of the threat, an end of the, and an end to the crimes against humanity that are being perpetrated by what we call a mafia-like crime family cult called the Kim family regime. Uh, and it is only through unification uh, that we will see an end to, to this, uh, to the threat on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and unification is what will bring stability uh, and prosperity uh, to Northeast Asia. And so this should be what our focus is. Uh, in 2009, President uh, Lee Myung-bak and uh, President Obama stated that the alliance vision was peaceful unification. President Obama and President Park reaffirmed that twice, and President Trump and President Moon again reaffirmed peaceful unification as the vision for the alliance on June 30th of 2017. Now, of course, whether it's peaceful or not is going to be determined uh, by Kim Jong-un because the enemy has a vote. Uh, but whether it's peaceful or whether it's through conflict, unification must be uh, the durable, the acceptable, durable political arrangement uh, that will ultimately achieve rock and U.S. strategic objectives for peace and prosperity on the Korean Peninsula. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on the Loopcast, Mr. Maxwell. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I know our listeners are going to be well informed on the subject now. And just thank you for spending time with us. Well, it was an honor and a pleasure. And I, uh, I hope that uh, you know. I hope that we all will uh, will focus on this problem 
and uh, and give it the strategic thought. Uh, whether you know you're an academic, a uh, government official, or an American citizen, uh, this is a problem that's going to affect everybody uh, if there is conflict and war on the Korean Peninsula. So we should do everything we can uh, to prevent that. And again, as I said, achieve unification because that is the only uh, the only end uh, to uh, to this problem. Thank you. Thank you.